Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. We're in the book of Romans, several weeks in now. We're in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 to 20 today. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20. Would you look there with me and would you stand with me as we read from God's word? And Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The American pastor from Philadelphia, Donald Barnhouse, he writes, man stands before God today like a little boy who swears with crying and tears that he has not been anywhere near the jam jar and who with an air of outraged innocence pleads the justice of his position in total ignorance of the fact that a good spoonful of the jam has fallen on his shirt, under his chin, and is plainly visible to all but himself. You know, there are some people who are ready to shake their fist up into the sky and say that it is completely ridiculous that God would be so cruel as to judge or punish anyone a world that's losing its grip on the idea of moral absolutes, increasingly incapable of determining what is actually right and what is actually wrong. It finds itself difficult to accept the reality that anyone is worthy of punishment. And so we're now actually beyond the point of merely saying that we didn't do it, but we're actually saying, yeah, there's jam on my shirt. So what? Who's to say that it's wrong for me to eat the jam in the first place? And we'll play dumb. And we will deny. And we will dodge. And we will redefine. And we'll do just about anything we can to muddy the waters and make it difficult to make any judgment calls whatsoever. 
But you know, what our world finds murky and elusive, God's word makes plain and inescapable. If we take a look this morning at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, we should have no doubt whatsoever in our minds whether or not the human race is deserving of judgment and whether or not God is justified in carrying out that judgment. Our passage this morning, it's the end of the first major section in Paul's letter to the Romans. He wants to show just how significant, just how powerful this gospel of Jesus is that he introduced us to in Romans 1.16. And he's been doing that by helping us understand our need our need for that gospel. If you were watching your, your late night television program and it was interrupted by me trying to sell you some handy dandy whatchamacallit, for you to have any interest in that product that I'm trying to sell to you, well, I've got to convince you that you need it. Because it really doesn't matter when it comes down to it how powerful it is or how innovative or how shiny unless you understand that you can't live without it. Well, what are the chances of you uh, picking up the phone, dialing that number and whipping out your credit card, right? Uh, Paul's not really trying to sell us anything here. He's a bit more like the guy hanging from that Coast Guard helicopter and he's holding out his hand and he's telling you, if you don't take this hand with that boat that's underneath your feet right now, that's giving you all kinds of confidence, that thing's going down and you are going down with it. People need what Paul is holding out to them. The people who are running away. The people are running away from the one who created them needed. They, they fooled themselves into thinking that there is no God, there's no one who's going to hold them accountable or whose image that they are supposed to bear in life. Instead, they're full steam ahead, full steam ahead into self-destructive and existentially cataclysmic waters. Then there are others who look at those who are are full of radical abandon and out there, and they're, they're making judgment on these people. They're a bit different in that they don't practice the, the very same things, maybe not the exact same things, in the exact same way, at least not in public. No, they're actually condemning the behavior of the people who are running to their ruin, and they've done them their best to clean themselves up, wash themselves up, drape themselves in sparkly, clean, freshly smelling clothes. But Paul points out, yeah, they're not safe either just like the first group. They know the difference between right and wrong. That's evidenced by the fact that they're actually trying to do right and claiming that they know what's right. And they're actually going to be judged for the same failure to do what's right as the first group. Then last week, we took note of a third group of people, the people who had been called out by God and had been entrusted with God's law and given that outward sign that there's actually a covenant, there's actually a contract between they and God. These people, of all people, feel safe. 
Everyone else is going to face the punishment of God. These people, though, they feel confident that they could never face judgment because according to Paul, but according to Paul, they're, they're wrong. They're, they're dead wrong. And that's because the outward signs that they had, well, those weren't really the things that mattered. It's their ability to keep their end of the contract that mattered. And according to Paul, they haven't kept it. So three groups, three different groups we've talked about. And it may seem at this point that we've got everything all buttoned up. Those who are the immoral, those who think that they're moral, and then those who belong to God's covenant people, the Jews, they're, they're all in danger. We get it. Everyone's in danger. In fact, not merely are they in danger, but they're headed to this inevitable encounter with the just judgment of a righteous God. And that left us asking at the end of our time together last week, well, okay, well, who can be good enough? Anybody? Is there anyone who hasn't been cut off from this God who created them? Well, it's time for the verdict, the final verdict. And in courtroom-like fashion, Paul is going to lay out the all-encompassing indictment. And he's going to hammer that proverbial nail in the coffin. And no one is safe. He begins by asking in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not a, no, not at all, he writes. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The actual Greek here, and if you look in your Bibles, you may see an annotation, a footnote at the bottom. The actual Greek reads, are we any better off? It's possible that Paul is still referring to himself and the Jewish people here, but many scholars and I actually agree that Paul is actually now addressing a new group of people. No longer are the, is he just talking to the Gentiles, and no longer is he just talking to the Jews, but now he backs up and says, all right, you people that I'm writing this letter to, Christians in Rome, I'm talking to you now. Are we any better off? You know what that means? That means as we read Romans 3, 9 to 20, that we actually need to be thinking of ourselves as well. And we need to be asking ourselves, do we see some of the same things that Paul is talking about here still present in our lives? Remember what Paul wrote to those moral people who were passing judgment in chapter 2, verse 3. He said, do you suppose, O man, you who, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? We saw him basically say the same thing to his Jewish brothers and sisters last week. And you might say, well, I'm not doing those, those exact same things. Sure, you may not be doing those exact same things as those other people. Maybe you've never committed adultery, or maybe you've never murdered anyone, at least not in the way that our society measures these things. But Jesus made it very, very clear that the very same heart Sins are committed when we merely look at another person with lust in our hearts 
or when we curse them with our attitudes and words. So what does this passage say about you? And what does it say about me? And if you or I were accused of these same things, what would you say in your defense? Are we any better off, Paul asks. The answer he gives is an absolute, unequivocal, resounding no. No, everyone is under sin. And not just under sin like you might be underwater. Yes, you are completely under it. It is completely covering all of you. But it's more than that. You're under sin in the sense that it's your master. It's what's driving you. It's controlling you. It's pervading every facet of your being and infecting and tainting even the best things that you do. What he's getting at here is this idea of total depravity. Maybe you've heard that term before. Don't mistake it for utter depravity. We're not talking about utter depravity because utter depravity says you are as bad as you could possibly be. You couldn't get any worse than you already are. We're not talking about utter depravity. We're talking about total depravity. Someone might argue, and rightly so, that there are probably millions of people out there that are worse than they. Sure, they could be worse than you. There could be many, many people that are worse than you. But the doctrine of total depravity, it gets us this idea that there is not a single part of you that is unimpacted by sin. Not your mind, not your will, not your body. It's all under sin. And so you can look out there and you can say, yeah, they're, they're worse than me. They're worse than me. They're a lot worse than me. But guess what? You're under sin just like everyone is under sin. The degree may be worse, but the reality is the same. And in the verses that follow, Paul offers up 13 evidences that you and I are an absolute mess. You think you're innocent? You got jam all over the place. First thing Paul attacks is our character. He gives us six major issues with our character. The first one... (laughs) Our character stinks. It's bad. No one is righteous. We are unrighteous. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Notice he says, as it is written. That's actually really important. Yeah, there's been a lot written about human behavior, about the human condition. One columnist a while back, actually many years ago, wrote uh, on the subject of human guilt. And she acknowledged that guilt is something that everybody struggles with. In fact, it's very, very normal to struggle with guilt. Don't think yourself odd because you feel guilty. But she said, guilt is something that we need to reject. We got to get rid of this. Everyone, yeah, everyone feels this, but you need to get rid of this thing. She wrote, guilt is a pollutant. And we don't need any more of it in the world. Everyone has guilt. And everyone's got to figure out how to deal with guilt. Some of us deny it. Some of us excuse it. Some of us try to pass it off onto others. Some of us try to come up with ways to just explain it away. But the reality is, if there is a God who created us and who stands as judge over all things, 
then his analysis is the only analysis that matters. And if he's the one who's ultimately going to make a determination as to what, to be, what is to be done about this guilt that you feel, well then, what he thinks really matters. And Paul writes here, as it is written. Do you know what that means? If the scriptures are God's revelation to the human race, that it means that what the scriptures say is what God thinks. And what Paul does here is to, is to pull from several different places from Scripture, and he strings them together. Like the old rabbis, they would talk about, we're going to string together pearls, all these little nuggets here. We're going to put all in one place. And that's what Paul's doing. All these different verses he's putting in one place so that we can get an idea of what this God who created us thinks about us. What does God think? Well, he thinks there's no one righteous. Nobody. No, not one. He looks out at the whole human race, and he determines they're all rotten. Rotten at their core. Not a single one of them is right before him. You and I were made to have fellowship with our creator. We were made to know him. We were made to enjoy him. We were made to represent him as people made in his image. Jesus said, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. But we're not that, are we? Take an honest look in the mirror <laughs> and tell yourself you're absolutely perfect. If you believe that, you are completely insane. You've lost touch with reality. You're delusional. You have a serious lack of self-awareness. Oh yeah, like we already said, there are some who are not as bad as others. In fact, sometimes the contrast is cranked up so high that those really, really, really bad ones out there, they, they leave us just feeling like we're, we're angelic, shiny. I just look great. But when it comes to our meeting the standards of righteousness that have been set forth by God, it, it really doesn't matter what the contrast is here, right? You may have heard this illustration before. There are a lot of people who can jump a few feet. I can jump maybe two feet. <laughs> but there are some people who can jump really, really far. Based on what my research, there's one person who's jumped the farthest. And on record in 1991, American Mike Powell he jumped an incredible 29 feet, four and a quarter inches, the running long jump. So we can look at Mike and we can say, Mike, you, you blow us all away. If I could jump like you, man, I would be really, really something. I could jump pretty far, but not as far as you, Mike. It's pretty awesome. But how far does Mike really get? Because, you know, if the distance that you and I need to meet to make God's standard is a little bit like the distance between the edge of the Balboa Pier and Maui, well, then it, it doesn't matter, Mike, how far you can jump, because I can jump too, but you jump out 29 feet, I jump two feet, guess what? We're both drowning here. We're, we're done. We don't make it. That's the idea. 
That's how we should look at our comparative righteousness here. You might have an edge on a few of your compadres out there, but guess what? In God's eyes, you're still a long way off. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. And that's the first character indictment here. No one's righteous. The second character issue is universal ignorance. No one understands. No one understands. One pastor points out, even if they were going to try to make that jump from the Balboa Pier to Maui, even if they were going to try to make that jump, they wouldn't know which way to jump because they're spiritually ignorant. Not only are they not righteous, they don't have a good understanding of what God's perfect righteousness even looks like. Yes, they can look at creation. We talked about this in Romans chapter one. They can know something about God's existence, right? They can know about his creativity. They can know about his power, maybe even his goodness here. And yes, Paul said, they have God's law written on their hearts. And so they've got this thing inside, these consciences that are whispering things to them. But the reality is that they have no ability to fully understand or know who God is because they've lost it. In their desire to be like God and determine themselves what is good and what is evil, they lost their capacity to have a right relationship with God or even know what that looks like. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Bible talks about people. Lost people are spiritually dead. And somebody says, well, that sounds really sad. I mean... I don't see how you can blame someone for not being able to do something or not even be able to understand or not even be able to see. Well, before you get too sympathetic, you need to look at Ephesians 4.18, where it's clear where this ignorance came from. It came from the hardness of our hearts. In their willful decision to go their own ways, human beings have deprived themselves of their ability to know and understand God. And so they're wandering around all over the place, feeling inside, something's not quite right inside of here, knowing that they, they have some sort of inadequacy, carrying guilt to some degree. They don't know how to fix themselves. How do we do it? Is it going to be through therapy? It's going to be through some cool-looking crystals that I put up on my windowsill, chanting special phrases maybe, searching for some sort of middle way, having some sort of self-punishment regimen or maintaining some type of moral standard. They, they, don't, they don't know because they're spiritually ignorant. Number three, they're rebellious. No one seeks for God. He writes in verse 11, Jesus said, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be open. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all 
your heart. And we might be thinking, there are all kinds of people out there that are seeking God. What about all those religions out there? Aren't they seeking God, we might ask? But the fact is that the religions of the world are all based upon our attempt to have a relationship with God on our terms. And so we come up with all kinds of harebrained schemes that make us feel good about ourselves. They convince us that our righteousness is all that we need or that we somehow have the ability to save ourselves. But all we're really doing is continuing on in our rebellion, continuing on determining God, your way, okay, you got your way, but I'm going to determine what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. And I say, this is good here, so I'm going to walk down this path. Now I'm right with you, right? We're good, right? Because I say this is, e- this is good. All we're really doing is continuing in that rebellion. We're writing our own rule books, recreating God in our own image, in, to our liking, spelling out what it what we're willing to do for him without acknowledging what he really wants from us. Jesus made it very clear in John 6.37, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, why? Because we're all like sheep wandering away from the shepherd, Isaiah 53, all going our rebellious way. It's who we are. It's who we've become. That leads us to number four. We're going the wrong way. We're we're wayward. Paul writes, all have turned aside. You've heard people say, maybe you've said it yourself, it's my way or the highway. We say things like that because we feel like we have some level of authority, some reason to believe that we are the decision makers. There used to be this framed picture up above our dining room table growing up that said, because I'm the mom, that's why. It's one thing to say that when you're the parent of a child or or, or when you're the boss, right? But when a child says something like that to the parent, or the created says something like that to the creator, there's a problem, a big problem. And that's the way human beings live in relation to the one that made us. We say either consciously or subconsciously, this is my life. This is my life. I'm going to live it my way, or perhaps the best way that I think. But you know, if there's a God who created us, what we should be saying is, show me your way. I, I, need, I need your I'll follow. You take the lead, I'll follow. Proverbs 14, 12 says, maybe you've heard it before, there's a way that seems right to a man, a human being, but its way is the way to death. And that's the way we're headed. Any way apart from God, pick a way. There are thousands, there are millions of ways. They all lead to death. All roads other than God's road lead to death. Number five, we become useless. He writes, together they become worthless. These human beings who have been made to represent 
God, to bear the image of God to the rest of all creation, to show them what God looks like, his righteousness, his justice, his love, his kindness. Guess what? I can't do it anymore. Not in any adequate way. In turning away from him, in taking a dip into the cesspool of unrighteousness, they've irreparably disabled themselves from doing what they were made to do. I had a television that I bought for the family, a big one, a big one over at Costco. It was on sale. It was amazing. So happy. So, so excited about this machine that's going to bring in these beautiful, brilliant, high-definition images into our living room. But all of a sudden, one day, all of a sudden, the screen went dark, and all these lines went through. <laughs> Kids, are you throwing, ball, throwing rocks at the TV? What's going on here? No, it just happened. And the films that we wanted to watch, we weren't able to watch anymore. Guess what? After I tried to fixing it myself, because I tried to fix everything, and realized I couldn't, guess where that TV went? gone. It was worthless. It was a piece of junk. Jesus said that unless we're connected to him, well, we're like a branch that can't bear any fruit. What good is this thing? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing in John 15. That's the state of humanity without Christ, useless. Number six, the final character issue is that we're corrupt. Verse 12, no one does good. Not even one. And that pretty much wraps all of the previous indictments all into one. People at their core are corrupt. It's not power that corrupts. It's not absolute power that corrupts absolutely. No, corruption is already there on the inside. It's just waiting for the opportunity to show its ugly head. And the testament of Scripture says they're corrupt. At verse 13, Paul turns his attention to what comes out of people's mouths. <sighs> this is going to be juicy. Number seven, the first is what flows out of their mouths. Uh, when they open their mouths... It reveals what's inside, and that's death. Their throat is an open grave. What a picture he gives there. In Ephesians 2, Paul declares, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That's our condition. Just like whitewashed tombs. Jesus talked about the, those whitewashed tombs in Matthew chapter 23. They look all pretty on the outside. Guess what's on the inside? It's not good. You know, there's a reason that we bury dead things, isn't there? We cover them over with about six feet of dirt because we know about that thing called decomposition that starts immediately. It's not going to take very long for the stink to pervade everything and for bacteria and disease to start spreading around all over the place to healthy people. But Paul tells us that our mouths... They're like open graves. They're, they're exposing. They're just letting it all out, all of the rot and all of the decay inside. Have you had conversations where that was clear, that that was happening? 
You, you, you saw that? You, you, you smelled it as the words were coming out of their mouth? You know, it doesn't always look like profanity, and it doesn't always look like perversity. Sometimes it looks like despair and hopelessness. It's coming out of their mouth. You know, it's revealing something's not right in here. Sometimes it looks like skepticism. Sometimes it looks like criticism and judgment on others. Sometimes it looks like self-deprecation. And we feel righteous, don't we, when we self-deprecate? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm humble here. What are we revealing about ourselves? Sometimes it looks like pride. Sometimes it looks like praise and worship of things. We put them way up here on this high plateau above and beyond any praise and worship of God. When you open your mouth, what does it reveal about the condition of your heart? Does it reveal that you have new life in Christ? Or does it reveal death? Number eight, they're deceitful. They use their tongues to deceive, he writes. That word for deceive here, it carries this idea of of baiting a hook. You're baiting a hook. It's the lure that promises good to others, but in reality, it only profits the one who's casting it out, and it ends up proving harmful to the one who falls for it. Jeremiah writes on this. He speaks for God in Jeremiah 9, 3. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his brother. Put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor. No one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. Who can you trust these days? Beats me. Just every single day, I've got a new text message. I've got a new voicemail from someone who's trying to lure me into giving them my personal information so that they could profit on it and so that I can lose from it. But it's not just the scammers. It's not just the con artists that we have to watch out for, is it? People are using their words to bait others, to get, to get something from others. They're using flattery. They're using sweet talk. They're using deception to get what they want. Does this happen at work? Does it happen on first dates? Does it happen on the playground? Does it happen in our homes? How often do we look at people around us as a means to an end? Spending time with others, having conversations with others, not because we want to bless them, but so that we can get something from them. They use their tongues to deceive. Number nine, their words are poisonous. The venom of asps is under their lips. That is, not only do they use their words to lure people in at risk to them, they actually intentionally use their words to inflict venomous poison. They knowingly inflict harm. Number 10, they're malicious. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Paul charges Christians in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Someone attacks you, go ahead and bless them. Bless and do not 
curse. Of course, he's taken a page from Jesus, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Out of God's mouth flows God's character. And those who belong to him have his life pouring out of them, pouring out of their mouths, out of their words, comes out in their words. But when curses and bitter stabbing words come out of a person's mouth, not given evidence that they belong to God, is it? It's giving evidence that they belong to someone else. Do your words come out like weapons? Are you lashing out against others and with inflicting wounds? If you are, you're giving evidence that maybe, just maybe, you might still be among those who are deserving judgment. From character issues to speech issues. From speech issues, now Paul turns to conduct. Check out verse, or check out the 11th charge. They are murderous. Their feet are swift to shed blood. We like to think that we're getting better as a society, as a world. We like to think that ours is a society that has moved past hatred and past all those old barbaric ways of slaying one another. We envision some sort of like Star Trek utopia where we have learned as a planet to get it together and we're cooperating with each other now. Things are going really, really well. And now it's time to use the warp drive and get out there into the galaxy so that we can bring civilization to the rest of the universe. And yet the reality is that barbarism and brutality continue. In fact, where, there, where, where there's not an all-out slaughter happening on foreign soil or out on the battlefront, it's happening on our streets. I read in, in 2021, there was a study that revealed that you and I have a one in one 179 chance of being murdered in the United States. And so much of our country would, would shake their heads and they say, that's a terrible thing, terrible thing. And yet, what do we have to say about the way we crucify each other in the comments sections? Or the way we insist that the right, on the right to eliminate unborn lives for the sake of preserving our preferred lifestyle. A 19th century evangelist wrote, the most savage animals do not destroy so many of their own species to appease their hunger as man destroys of his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, or his greed. No matter how advanced or how enlightened we have become, we're still quick to eliminate each other. We do it with the sword. Yeah, we do it with, with pills and procedures. We do it with words. We do it with our hearts. 
Number 12, the people of the earth are destructive. In their path are ruin and misery. Destruction's all around us, isn't it? That's undeniable. We see it every time we turn on the morning news. We see the fiery masses of twisted steel on our freeways because of reckless driving. You see storefronts broken up and display cases torn to shreds as people are trying to help themselves. You see marriages torn apart by unfaithfulness. You see wives and children just battered and bruised because of abusive husbands and fathers. You see teens just cutting themselves, starving themselves, killing themselves. And, and the crazy thing is these are common day occurrences. In fact, we don't very often, you, you flip on the news and you're just waiting for the weather. You're just like, okay, let's get past this. Oh yeah, another car accident, another this, another that, another murder. Let's get to the weather because I want to see how my day is going to be. Don't even phase us because we've been desensitized to it because it's so prevalent. Ruin and misery. Paul isn't making this stuff up. Number 13, the final thing, peace is nowhere to be found. We are peaceless. The prophet Jeremiah writes that people cry out, peace, peace. There is no peace. Peace is something that we value, something that we say that we prize, we might like to think that it's increasing in our world, but we've taken an honest look, it's not. On a global scale, it's not. On a national scale, it's not. We look at our towns, it's not. Our homes. And so many people would even say, yeah, it's not even in here. The way of peace that they, they have not known, Paul writes. And someone might say, well... <laughs> Okay, that's a lot of stuff here. This is this sermon's going way too long, and I need to get out of here. But but I, I just got I got to understand. Like, how did we get this way? What was going? You got to explain it. So you're claiming God created these people, and you're claiming that He made them in His image. He is righteous. He is just. He is holy. He is good. He is loving. They don't look like that at all. How did we get this way? And Paul concludes his pummeling indictment by simply stating, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God. Not in the sense of, of, of respect for him, in awe of him, and not in the sense of terror of him. That he might just out of the blue show up and unleash his fury. Why should they pay any attention to him at all if they don't fear him? In their minds, he's not relevant to their lives. He's not necessary for their flourishing. He's no threat to their existence. If he was, well, they might think differently. They might behave differently. But because they no longer have any fear of God, well, they have no motive to behave otherwise. On the contrary, they have every motive to, to, to move, to run after Things that are pleasing to themselves, self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction. Does your life give evidence of the fact that you know and fear God? That you understand what he's capable of? We've heard the indictment. We've considered the motive. All that's left is a verdict. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. The verdict is in. It's already been made clear that everyone who has ever lived is under God's law. Some people have been given God's revealed law. But for others, it's been written on their hearts. There's no excuse. The verdict is there is no 
defense. The law has been given. You have nothing to say. There is no defense. You're part of this. I'm part of this. Everyone is part of this. You might try to argue there are degrees of bad, of unrighteousness out here, but we've all failed to one degree to to another. Everyone's accountable to their creator. And should you think that your best efforts to keep the law, to, to be good, to do good things, in some way make up for the wrongs that you or I have done, you're wrong. Because all the law does is to shine a light on all the reasons that you and I deserve to be judged. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No, the law can't save you. Can't save you. You can try to keep it. You can look at other people around you, think that you're doing a pretty good job. You're not keeping it. The verdict is in. There's jam all over your hands and all over your shirt and all over your face. And all of it says, guilty. You, me, everyone is under this thing called sin. Not a single one of us is innocent. Not one of us comes close to making up for the wrongs that we've done. We all stand before the great judge, guilty as charged. The question is, where do we go from here? What will our response be? Is there any hope? And to answer that, you're either going to have to read ahead or you're going to have to come back next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it confronts us in the most profound and intimate and devastating way. This is devastating news that we have before us. And this tells us, Lord, that we need you. We need you, Lord. There is no other hope. There are no other options. There is no uh, remedy for our problem other than one that may come from you. And thank you, Lord, that we know there is a remedy that from before the beginning of time, you planned for that remedy And you have made it clear. You have revealed it to us in your word. And we know that that remedy is Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was cut off in our place. That he bore our guilt and our shame. And he paid for it. That by trusting in him, his righteousness might be credited to us and our guilt and shame might be credited to him and we might be restored forgiven made right with you and given hope thank you for jesus lord if there's someone listening to this who does not yet know this jesus may they know him today confessing their need confessing their sin looking to the cross of Christ and saying, that, 
That is what I need. Forgive me, transform me, make me new. Lord, for the rest of us, may this become real. We're so quick to turn this kind of stuff into into nothing. We're desensitized to it. Maybe we've heard it all too often. Lord, make it real in our hearts. May we fear you. May we know you. Would your spirit inside lead us to repent of our sin, to be made right with you. Lord, some of us have wandered. Some of us have, we've gone to church our whole lives, but we've gotten very, very comfortable and we are doing all sorts of things that are not honoring to you. There are things that are coming out of our mouth that reveal that there's still something not right inside. Lord, may we be changed this morning, confessing those things, turning from them, turning back to you and crying out for your mercy and letting it wash over us just like you clean Peter's feet, and he said, just just do it all. We need that, Lord. Transform us, wash us clean, make us new, and make us into people who represent you well in our world. We love you. Thank you again for your word, this time together with your people, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.